Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode. And I'm happy to introduce Sarah Webb. We're going to talk about fractional CFO. I've had several guests in the past about talking about fractional positions, and she's focused on profitability. Today, we're going to be talking about how to uh, run a successful medical practice, protecting clinics against financial fraud, legal entities. And I'm really excited about this bread and butter episode. So Sarah, welcome. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know basically accounting and is kind of like, that's like the, if you understand accounting, the numbers, it's like learning how to read and understanding how to read. So tell people about your story and your background and how you got started and we'll dive right into the conversation. Yeah. Well, I've always loved money and was not great at higher level math. I think I had to have a tutor to get through calculus, but I really understood dollars and cents. And so <laughs> I've always been focused on business and I went to college. I have a, an accounting undergraduate degree. And so then I went and worked at a big four and I did tax returns when I was a baby accountant. And I really saw, you know, when you're doing someone's tax return, it's it's kind of like an exam of how they spent their money last year, what they purchased, what they what they, I don't want to say value, but you know, how their business is really operating, but it, but it's very hindsight, right? So when I was doing tax returns, that's in March or April, the year's already over. Like I can't do anything about the prior year. And so after I worked at um, the big four, I went and worked for a pharmaceutical and that was just eye opening of, you know, how new drugs come to market and, things like that, understanding how sales reps go into doctor's offices and how they are educating physicians and practices. And so when I decided to leave kind of corporate America, I saw a real niche for a real need for high level accounting, high level financial services, but for really much smaller businesses than what I had been serving. So, you know, maybe someone had a, a bookkeeper and they were delivering reports, but then what do you do with that information? So I kind of pair, you know, the accounting and compliance, but also that forward looking piece of why, what this information will tell you and how it helps you make better decisions. Yeah. And like I said, uh, accounting is kind of like, you know, it's like the basics, it's the language of business. So if you don't understand accounting, then uh, you better hire somebody or, or you're not going to do very well. So, um, so we talk about this idea, you know, fractional, fractional CFO, and um, I've heard this term come up numerous times this year. And so kind of for the audience who haven't listened to some of the back episodes, what is a fractional CFO? So a fractional CFO is someone who is not employed at your organization full time. You're only needing them a fraction of a typical business week or maybe even a, of a business month, an operating cycle. So in most cases, practices have their own bookkeeper or practice manager who's maintaining the day to day operations of the accounting. And then the fractional CFO will come in and review that work and sit down with the business owner to help them make decisions. But they're not. They're not sitting in your office every single day. You know, they're kind of like on standby or they're helping you with big projects, but you're only getting them for a fraction of the time. Mm, I love that. Like basically part-time. Yeah. For some of our organizations that we're supporting, you know, we're working with them for five to 10 hours a week. Others, we're only working with them for five hours a month. It just kind of depends on where they are on the maturity cycle of their accounting. Yeah. And why does someone need to hire a fractional CFO versus a full-time CFO? Well, they're expensive. That's that's the number one cost is, you know, just 
the average salary for a CFO, CPA qualified individual is, you know, that's a full-time staff role. And, you know, most private medical practices, they're smaller, they don't have a lot of overhead and they're trying, you know, people are wearing multiple hats, right? And so, you know, you're really just tapping into that expertise when you need it. Um, most organizations, you know, if they're under $20 million of gross revenues, they don't need a full-time person. And so we kind of bridge the gap in nothing, you know, or working with your bookkeeper into that space, you know, three to 5 million, all the way up to $20 million in sales or gross receipts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And um, as a fractional CFO, what is the first thing you review when taking on a new client? Yeah. So especially in medical practices, I go and look at if they're actually doing accrual accounting or cash accounting. So for most um, practices, they are doing cash accounting. That's how your tax return is is filed. Right. So that's money that came in the door minus money that went out the door. But what I see with medical practices is if they're buying supplies from distributors or manufacturers, they're not always reporting that. And so they might have this really big liability that they are not recording on a daily basis and, you know, it balloons up and, and you kind of lose control of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay. So kind of talk about, we talk about, you know, a CFO, we talk about, so one thing is um, among physicians is um, so they work their butts off the entire year. We're talking about self-employed, like solo or, you mm-hmm. know, kind of private practice and they you work so hard. And at the end of the year, let's say their revenue, let's say, you know, revenue is like a million or whatever. And they, let's say, then they don't even have um, a common complaint is they don't have money to pay the taxes. They don't have money to pay themselves. And, you know, they're, they're basically running on fumes, burnt out. What is going on? Yeah. So that that's not unique to doctors. Um, I think they're burnt out more, right? Because you're seeing, a you know, the volume of patients that you're seeing on a daily basis, but not having money to pay yourself or pay your taxes is a common small business owner. And physicians are focused on providing patient care, right? They're not always looking at their balance sheet every single day um, of what's going on. So we work, we're profit first professionals. We're certified in a cash management methodology. And what I really like about it is it helps build in that payment every single time to the physician. It helps them set aside money for taxes. Um, And sometimes it's just, you know, you have to look at a methodology and and chip away at it a little bit at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so what are three metrics a business owner should focus on to determine the health of their business? Yep. I mean, I think looking at trends, uh, gross receipts year over year, um, it's kind of hard depending on how the practice was impacted by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that when you go back, start maybe in 2018 and look at it year over year, are you growing? Um, I'd also look at your accounts receivable. Is it increasing month over month? And that, that means that you're billing and, or your practice manager, you know, they need to be getting on the phone with patients or working through denials um, and those collection pieces. And then I would look at how much you're spending on payroll. I mean, the world has changed post-COVID, I see this as the fastest growing line item on physicians um, income statements as they're having to monetize and, you know, incentivize their staff in in different ways. One really great book that I recently read was a profit first, which is kind of along your lines, this fractional CFO and basically in, uh, you know, paying yourself first and kind of have buckets allocated taxes, your income, you know, all these expenses so that at the end of the year, you know, you have, 
you're not here with a surprise bill or, you know, you don't have money to pay for expenses. Uh, the other question is, um, you know, talking about this idea of income, how should a small business owner figure out what to pay themselves? Well, we always want to pay ourselves as much as possible. So <laughs> depending on what type of legal entity in really depends on how you pay yourself, not necessarily how much. The most common legal entity that I see um, private medical practices in are the S-Corp or um, professional corporation. And so they're paying themselves through a combination of wages and distributions. And, you know, one, you've got to look at your standard of living. So maybe that's your wage of what it takes for you to live. And I'm not talking extravagantly. I'm just saying, what is it to, you know, health, education, maintenance, home, and then really tapping into the opportunity for distributions when the practice is performing well, right? So when there is a net profit, you're able to distribute some of that income to yourself. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, the, the next question is, um, so again, talking about this idea of time freedom and um, how can a small business owner take time off or plan a vacation? Yes. I mean, I think we all want more time off. I think it's empowering your team and preparing them. So under a few different methodologies, you know, sometimes you can take a week off, right? What happens? What breaks while you're gone? Well, while you're go when you get back to the office, you've got to kind of solve that little process of, okay, this didn't work or this person didn't have the right signature authority. Then, you know, a few months later, take two weeks off, then figure out what's going on um, and what that cycle is. And I think ultimately you can build up to, you know, four weeks off, six weeks off, but it's all about training your staff and empowering them. And it's really, you can't just, you know, set them free and let them go. They have to have, you know, process manuals, authorities, and they need to be doing it in the way that you're wanting it done. Not, you know, not the way that they want to do it necessarily. I mean, eventually you get them there, but you've got to really invest in that training of how you want the business to run without you. Yeah. The other question is, um, how do individuals know, um, cause a lot of doctors, they're, they're trained to do everything themselves. And so how do they know when the higher, of course, like, you know, administrative staff and things like, but how do they know when to grow and expand or hire more people take on, maybe take on a partner as well, kind of talk about those considerations. Yeah. Well, depending on what specialty, um, or general practice that the, the physician is, you know, it's really about how many patients can you see a day, right? And then how are you leveraging the tree, right? So you have a medical assistant handle the, the initial weigh-in and blood pressure. You know, you're kind of building in that you're really focusing your time only on the things that need your time. You know, I see other practices really advance their ability to see more patients using nurse practitioners or physician's assistants, um, and again, training them in the way and the methodology of your practice, but leveraging them to see more patients. Um, I see a lot of physicians, you know, they really want to be the person who sees the new patient and really come up with the standard of care and then have the physician assistant or nurse practitioner really execute the plan. And maybe they're only checking in with the patient every three to six months. Yeah. So it depends on, you know, uh, you know what you're looking for and what are the critical differences between hiring a contractor and hiring an employee? Well, sometimes it depends on what state you're in. So if you're in California, almost everyone is an employee. Um, in other states, it's really a matter of control. 
I prefer to see in medical practices that their employees, they're covered under your insurance and you don't have to worry about the, you know, they're covered under your malpractice. You don't have to confirm that they have their own malpractice. Um, so it's really some legal considerations specifically in, in medicine. That's kind of numero uno. And then, you know, are they managing their own schedule? Are they in charge of their own collections? Likely not. Right, they need to be under your EMR and some of those types of things. So, in medical practices, we primarily see the employee model, and some other businesses, it's really about the degree of control. You know, are they giving you a deliverable? Where in medicine, you know, the patient's not a deliverable versus like a graphic designer, right? A graphic designer is making a logo and delivering you a product. Um, other people working in the medical practice are not delivering an end product to you. So, most of the time, they're uh, employees versus contractors in private medical practices. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, independent contractors, you don't, you can pay them a 1099 and, you know, uh, full-time employees, you have to have, you know, benefits and all these uh, additional, you know, paid time off, all of that. Next question is, um, okay, so fraud and, you know, all these illegal and um, things are creeping up in our society is a general. So how can physicians protect their clinics against financial fraud? Um, and what are the most common types of fraud you see in private practices and, and all of that? Yeah. So fraud, I have seen more fraud in the last 24 years than I have in my entire existence of working in this, in the accounting space. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is one, the hackers and people sending you emails are more sophisticated than ever. So phishing schemes are the number one thing and, and training your staff to not click on emails and not click on links is, is really the number one thing. Sadly, a medical practice, they received an email, a fictitious email we learned later on of clicking on something or following something. And the vendor was telling them that they had changed their banking information. And they followed it and several hundred thousand dollars went out the door to a fictitious, you know, manufacturer. But, mm. you know, I think sometimes we're so in a rush to email or message, like we need to pick up the phone. Like we need to pick up the phone and verify the information and, and make sure that that makes sense. So that that is the number one way that I'm seeing fraud happening. Mm -hmm. Another way mm -hmm. is if you have an employee that never takes off. Like ever, if the employee never takes off and they're in your accounting or billing department, uh, that it's not necessarily like they're causing fraud. Like we have those dedicated employees that just, you know, don't take time off, but there is, you know, it does need to be some testing of letting someone else be a backup, letting someone else do something because if they're in control of those funds and there's no oversight or they're never taking a day off, they have a lot more control um, of the funding and, and it's potential, right? It's, it's not saying it's in fact, but it, it, you're, it's available to them to, to have some fraudulent activity. Mm, yeah, that's really, uh, cause you know, one of my, um, colleagues, you know, he's, um, he's CEO and he basically has basically not one person is in control. It's like basically five, if like a large amount, it's has to be like approved by different, like five different layers in order for it to, like I said, you know, the, the amount of integrity and just kind of in our society is all time low and just, you know, cyber crime, cybersecurity, you know, all these, you know, phishing scams. Um, the other, the other thing, of course, you know, legal entity, uh, 
for the audience out there, talk about why it's important, how to set it up, you know, what considerations, S-Core, C-Core, talk, talk about those. Yeah, especially physicians, you've got to have that legal protection. So, you know, other types of professionals, maybe lawyers, accountants, they can be um, self-employed, maybe a Schedule C for several years. I would always recommend to a medical practice to be an LLC or a corp really from the beginning. You need that. That is creating a barrier between you and any potential lawsuit. After mm-hmm. that, some of its personal preference. I love the S Corp just because I, I think it's it's flexible enough. If you want to add other partners slash shareholders, other physicians, there's a way for them to buy in easily. Um, corporations are also good, but there's some double taxation there. And so that's really why I'm pushing. I'm always pushing for the S Corp. Um, some typical structures I see with physicians is especially if they're owning their own business or physical location, if they have commercial property, you know, maybe they have one holding company at the top, one legal entity, that's their practice, one legal entity, that's the commercial property, one legal entity that's, you know, doing something else, but you're just creating barriers of protection, legal protection, um, which is important, especially in this field. Yeah. The other question is, how about if you're um, if you're a uh, private practice and you have partners, um, how, do, how what considerations do you need there? You know, I think you you have to plan for the three D's, um, as we say, death, divorce and dismemberment. You have to be ready to to break up at all times. So, you you know, looking at when you're taking on a partner, you know, having a buy sell agreement in place at the beginning. Right. So if partners break up, it's generally not pleasant. But if you already have a legal document that says this is how you will behave or this is how it will happen, you know, and you create that when things are going well and it's reasonable, it's a lot easier to break up. Uh, Also, you know, in the medical field, depending on you might have a non-compete for so many miles or radius of your clinic that can be important, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, um you know, these days and age, is it worth the financial risk? Um, you know, partners, you know, spouses always have legal agreements um, in place. I mean, because, you know, these days, anything can happen. Um, then the next question I have is, uh, so C-Core, S-Core, and these different legal entities, um, kind of talk about like final, as we come to the close, what are some final closing thoughts and um and uh, how can people contact you, follow you, et cetera? Yeah. So I think understanding your legal entity and how you get paid is really important. We have a legal entity white paper that kind of walks you through a tree of, you know, how you should be paying yourself. We can definitely share that with your, with your audience. I think physicians and private practices, we need to be protecting them and encouraging them and helping them grow because they give the highest quality of care to patients. And so if they're not able to financially sustain their practices, you know, it's getting harder and harder for patients to receive that level of care. Um, so I think having your financial house in order is just another thing that helps you provide better patient care. You know, you know that your your back office is running the way that it should. Um, and it's it's working as a machine and, and providing you what you need as a family. Your one follow-up question that you were talking about is, um, you know, for private practice owners, uh, what are the advantages of owning the commercial property outright, you know, having your clinic and all that versus re- renting it? I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious. 
Well, for the physician, it can be a wealth generating tool, right? So maybe you don't need the whole space. You might rent part of it to another practice or even just even another type of provider. Um, so you're able to pay yourself rent. That's always good. And then, you know, when you retire, that's an asset that you have. You can you can lease it to another physician practice or, you know, it can be part of your plan. I see this a lot in attorneys and physicians, you know, owning their building and then leasing it back, um, especially if they're retired, that can create a nice revenue stream. So it's one of my favorite, you know, I, people like real estate. Real estate's a good investment. Um, it's, it's even better when you're your own renter because, you know, you're going to take good care of it. Yeah. It reminds me of house hacking for residential real estate. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How can people contact you, follow you, et cetera? Yeah. We're at web, webbcfo.com. And, you know, you can follow us on all the socials and they're the same. We we're serving uh, medical practices from East coast all the way kind of West coast. We carve out California. So, um, yeah. but serving practices and, you know, helping doctors make better financial decisions is what, what we're good at. And we love doing it. We love working with physicians and their practices. Excellent. And for all the audience out there, it was a really interesting conversation about accounting, medical practice, um, you know, all the considerations. Uh, Sarah's resources will be in the links and show notes. Be sure to follow her on all her socials, uh, check her business out, contact her. And with that, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me.